Hello. This edition of Health on the Line has two new features. First, I'm going to preface the interview with some short comments about what's at the front of my mind right now as Confed CEO. I want to reflect what I've been hearing from members. What are your priorities and how are we trying to reflect those? I'll be doing this for all future editions just to make sure we stay topical, give you an insight into the day-to-day work that we're doing. Second, in this show, I'm not just going to speak to one person, but have a conversation with three health service leaders. We recorded the session at our recent highly successful Confed Expo, and as you'll hear, it was really lively conversation. I promise that what I'll feature in these short opening essays won't always be about what I've been doing, but well, there are a couple of things I wanted to draw your attention to. The first is to encourage you to have a look at my speech to the Confed Expo. It's on YouTube, just search my name and Confed. In the speech, I tried to reflect what our members have been telling me on calls and in visits. I explored the contrast between how things are feeling right now for leaders in a service under enormous pressure, even before what looks like a new upsurge in COVID. And then I ask, how can we build a bridge from where we are now to the future we want to create, a future of better, more equitable, more preventative, more community-based services? And then reflecting on that question of where we are now, where we want to get to, I I describe what I think could be the planks that we need to build that bridge. First, political honesty, commitment. We need politicians to be realistic about where we are, to acknowledge the pressures that we face, and to commit to give us the tools that we need to do the job. You know, as we've shown with long waits for elective care or the vaccination program, if we're given the tools, we will do the job. Secondly, we need the right national leadership, a leadership that is maybe a bit more about empowering and slightly less about instructing. Thirdly, we need a more robust, a more ambitious conversation with our partners and the public, being clear about what we can do, what we can't do, and more importantly, talking about how we could achieve more if we could work with our partners, with the public, co-create new ways of working that achieve better outcomes. And then finally, we've got to be willing to have a critical conversation about how we live up to our hopes and values in our own culture. And partly that's about being as productive and efficient, as effective as we can be, because we have to be accountable to the taxpayer. But it's also about grasping the nettle on some of those really difficult issues. Issues like inclusion, like tackling the scourge of institutional racism. So those four planks, political honesty and commitment, the right national leadership, stronger relationship with partners and the public, getting our own culture right, get all that right, and I think we've got a chance of building that bridge that takes us from where we are now to where we all want to get to. So anyway, have a watch of the speech and and tell me what you think. And by the way, for those of you who weren't able to make it, there's loads more content from what was an excellent Confed Expo available on our website. The other thing I hope you'll check out is a blog I've written on the proposed long-term plan refresh. By the way, that's also going to be the subject of the conversation you're about to hear. In the blog, again, reflecting what members have said to me, I talk a bit about the original plan and its strengths, but focus on some recommendations for the refresh. I, I argue 
it needs to feel like it brings things together rather than being yet another thing on top of all the other targets and priorities the system is subject to? How can it bring coherence to the noise rather than add to it? Secondly, I, I call for the refresh to reflect the shift of system working and the need for systems and places to have the space to determine their own priorities. And I also urge a fresh narrative to address the kind of pessimism that exists about the health service. Those who say that spending money, investing money in the health service is a bottomless pit. So I suggest we, we return to some of the themes of the Wandos Report 20 years ago and demonstrate how with the right investment and the right policies, we can bend that demand curve. We can get to a position of long-term financial sustainability. Anyway, you can read the blog on our website. So tell me what you think of that as well. But now, with no further ado, let's head to Liverpool. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Well, it's great to be here at Confed Expo, the biggest gathering of health leaders for well, for three years since before uh, the pandemic. It's my uh, first conference in person as, as chief executive, and I'm sitting here looking out across the Mersey. The sun is shining. It's the hottest day um, of the year. So um, we're going to be talking this morning in this session with my three guests um, about how they feel about Confed Expo, how they feel about what's going on in the health service, and in particular about the long-term plan refresh, which we're awaiting, awaiting from uh, NHS England. So with no, uh, no more ado, um, I'm going to be asking our guests to introduce themselves. Um, and let's start, Louise, with, with you. So I'm Louise Ansari. I'm the National Director of Healthwatch England. And I'm also a non-executive director designate for the Sussex ICB which has given me an interesting perspective. Yes. Um, Expo's been amazing so far, hasn't it? Just, as you say, fantastic energy, great speakers. I've seen so many people, reconnected with so many people from the years. It's just, it's just been wonderful so far. Brilliant. Great. Simon? Uh, I'm Simon Whitehouse. I'm the Interim Chief Exec at Designate. Uh, can lose the designates hopefully on the 1st of July uh, for the uh, Shropshire Telfer and Rickin uh, Integrated Care Board. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation this morning. And how's Comfort Expo been for you so far? Uh, so, it, uh, following on from what Louise has said, uh, it's been been great actually. Uh, the the content, uh, the speakers, the the in-person piece, uh, the, the, the connections and the conversations, the realisation that actually healthcare and leadership's a contact sport uh, and you need to be doing that in person. Uh, but at the end of the day, also recognising quite how unused I am to it. Uh, and I was really tired last night. <laughs> Tayo. Uh, my name is Tayo Kofiji. I'm a GP uh, in uh, Milton Keynes. Um, and uh, I'm also a PCN clinical director for the Bridge PCN. Um, I also ha have a second hat working for the um, CCG as director of transformation. Great. And Comfort Expo, how has it been for you so uh, far? Comfort Expo, like, like everyone has said, I think it's been a really, really great opportunity just to catch up with um, with people. I think for me, the biggest thing has been the networking. So 
you sort of walk 20, 30 yards and you find somebody you know and you have a bit of a chat and you catch up about stuff. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's well here because we want to see the NHS get better. We want to do better work for our patients. Uh, and I think what, what the networking and all of the contacts is doing is helping us just to reconnect and share what it is that we, we, we think we can do better and how we can help each other, support each other through this journey. So for me, that's been really, really good uh, and a great opportunity again. Great. Now, I, I said that we were going to think in particular about the long-term plan refresh, but that's an opportunity really to think about where the health service is and what it, and what it needs uh, right now. And I, I suggested in, in, in my speech yesterday that there was a, a kind of contrast between how it feels right now out in the system, but yet also the sense of possibility that there is about data, digital, med tech, collaborative working, integration, um, uh, a sense of excitement about the future, but yet things are very difficult uh, now. So Simon, st- starting with you, h- how do you think the long-term plan refresh needs to kind of relate on the one hand to the original long-term plan, but on the other hand to where we are right now? What does the system need from a long-term plan refresh? I, I think it's a really interesting time, uh, actually, because uh, if we think about alignment of policy uh, experience in the NHS would say we've not always been in a situation where uh, uh, the system and partners and providers, commissioners, uh, have been in a situation where they've looked at a long-term plan and they've looked at the, the integration uh, uh, white paper uh, and said, you know what, there's a lot in here that we are we agree with and align and get behind it. Uh, so uh, the, the long-term plan refresh needs to build on the original long-term plan because broadly, I think it had support of uh, of systems and it had support of uh, partners delivering health and care. Uh, so uh, we absolutely need to bring it up to date post what have we learned through the pandemic. Uh, and we need to just make sure that we are uh, talking about the priorities and the focus that we've got now on uh, dealing with the backlog, dealing with the elective recovery piece that I'm sure we'll come on to, mm. uh, and that integration agenda. But let's not lose... The, the core connection that landed well with the original long-term plan, actually. So I think, it's, I think the refresh is a good language and a good narrative to use in that space. Uh, and, Louise, what do you think needs to be different? I mean, I, I've got a, uh, a blog post published uh, today. Uh, one of the things I say is this long-term plan needs to recognise that system working has, 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 has been introduced and that, therefore... In a sense, in that health partners are now working with local authority partners, the voluntary sector and others, the idea that the health service is telling people in the health service what to do in, in, in the situation where they're actually needing to, needing to work in partnership is kind of slightly problematic. And therefore, probably one thing about this, this plan, it needs to be less target heavy. It needs to emphasise the need for systems and places to work things out with their own partners. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that's that's right. I mean, obviously, I come from the perspective of, and it's not been mentioned as much as perhaps it could have been during Confed so far, and in general, in the in health systems, the perspective of of the patient and of the public and of communities. Um, actually, we've just done a piece of work for uh, NHS England to to look at what people thought of the original long term plan and whether or not that translates over into how they feel now about various areas, including things like. Um, waiting times mm-hmm. and the focus on prevention and people generally thought that the original long-term plan was um, was the right way to go um, but obviously COVID disrupted that so much uh, and they have got somewhat different views now which I can come on to later if you want I mean the the, the, the point about you know 
is health all about targets? And with integration, can we do a lot more in terms of thinking about people as actually whole people who sometimes perhaps don't prioritise health and sometimes their housing is really poor and that's going to impact on their health and sometimes they're going to cancel or delay an operation themselves because they have to go to work. You know, what what role indeed do other system partners play in supporting people? And so I am very optimistic actually about integrated care systems that will kind of open that question out a bit more to support people and patients more you know, in a more complete sort of way. And, and Taya, one of the other things that I, I argue in this uh, blog is that the long-term plan is an opportunity to, to, to underline a kind of narrative of hope. Now, you're you know, working in general practice, which is one of those areas which feels under immense strain. You know, and I, I chaired a, a session with Claire Fuller, Sid uh, Montgomery and others yesterday, and, you know, there were GPs in the room talking about the pressures, talking about seeing their colleagues leave in their early 50s. Um, and, I th- and yet, Claire's vision for primary care is, is exciting. And so primary care is one of those areas where, again, you have this kind of feeling of the possibility of change, but yet, day in, day out, it feels really tough. And the Secretary of State's made comments yesterday which won't have helped. So do you think the long-term plan is also a, an, an opportunity to kind of excite people about the fact that there is something beyond this these current pressures? I think what we need to remember is, like I said, general practice is, is the front door of the NHS. This is where 90% of contacts in the NHS happen. Uh, over a million people a day get treatment or get some sort of support and help from primary care. Uh, so I think um, the the the... the frustration that we're seeing at that front door is, is the frustration with the NHS in general. But yes, general practice uh, as a profession is becoming really, really challenging. But as you said, I think I was at the, at the uh, Claire Fuller um, session yesterday, and I think the, 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 I think what, the, what one of the panel members mentioned there was the hope that that report and that review gives primary care to say that there is something on the horizon that actually can make things better. But I think in terms of the refresh of the long-term plan, what we need to see is building on the stock take review uh, recommendations. Uh, and that's for ICSs and mm-hmm. for systems to take on that challenge. Uh, it's not for primary care to do uh, to do it on, the, on their own. And in fact, they can't do a lot of the stuff in there on their own. They've got to work with systems, with the ICS, uh, with the ICSs uh, to actually make those things happen. But I think what, the, what, what comes out of it is the hope that things can improve and can get better. But we've got to see the the actions that mm. support that as well. I think it's not just having the document. We've got to actually see the actions from, from the centre, but also from our ICSs. Uh, and it's interesting, Ty, because one of the things you said there is, is another thing that I, 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 I argue in this blog, which is that it needs to feel like this refresh brings coherence to all the other initiatives and priorities. What we don't need is yet another thing alongside all the other things. Do you think that one of the roles of the long-term plan is for busy people at the front line, hearing all of these initiatives rushing down, it pulls it together and it gives it a sense of coherence? Uh, definitely, yes. Otherwise, there's, there's going to be a plethora of, of all the 
all the policies and all the initiatives. And I think what we need more is streamlining a lot of those. Um, but looking at the, pre the long-term plan that was launched in 2019, quite a few of the elements of that, uh, as, um, as we've seen, uh, particularly relating to primary care, have already been met. So establishing PCNs, for example, they're already there. Personalized care, bringing in social prescribers and um, health, and care, uh, health and well-being coaches to primary care, they're already there. So we need to see that continu continuity from the previous long-term plan uh, and build on that. And equally, we then need to see how the new, all the new policies and the new initiatives that are being launched are, are all connected mm -hmm. rather than bringing them separately. So I think that would really help just to see, uh, just to see that streamlining come together. Yeah, so one of the things that Claire said yesterday was that, that she doesn't want to see her stock take as a set of initiatives around primary care. She wants to see it as an account of what system working means, at, particularly at locality Level, so it's really about system working, not yeah. just about yeah. uh, 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 about primary care. I mean, Louise, you in, you intriguingly referred to the fact that what the people what people want out of this may not, you know, uh, it may be slightly challenging. I mean, do you feel from your work that the long term plan impinged upon the average kind of patient or member of the public? Were they aware of it? And should this refresh attempt to be something that engages the public, or is that is that unrealistic? I mean, you know, the words long-term plan wouldn't have impinged on any member, of the, any member of the public, I guess, nor any of these, you know, initiatives or any of the papers or any of the guidance that comes out. Um, but what does, what is really important for members of the public is, you know, is their day-to-day -day experience. And Ty was talking about things like, you know, what happens in general practice um, and having, uh, you know, health coaches and that kind of thing. People really appreciate that. Um, but it, the variation in experience of getting access to a GP appointment, you know, worry, it, it is, is huge. People mm. are really, really frustrated, as, as you said, Tyler, about, you know, about not being able to get access in the way they want to. And I was talking to a GP here yesterday who said, oh, well, we, we actually ask people on the register whether or not they really need a face-to-face -face appointment or whether they're happy uh, filling out an online form or having a telephone appointment. And he said, well, people are really happy with that. Uh, and so quite a lot of it is down to communication because mm. if people are you know instantly kind of shuffled into one track and they feel kind of that they're not communicated with they don't have a choice and they are you know fingers hovering over the keypad at, at one minute to eight in the morning and they're not getting an appointment then you know concepts like the full review will seem a long way away mm. from people's ordinary experience unless and until things like that are you know, you can get access to urgent care plus continuity of care implemented really comprehensively across the board. And it was wonderful, wasn't it, that um, all the 42 uh, ICS chief execs signed it. So I think there's real will there and there's, there's real optimism. Mm. But if I can just take another minute mm. on, you know, what, what, what people think about and what they want. Obviously, they want access to GPs in the way that they, that's good for them. And... Um, in the initial the initial work we did on the on the first long term plan, people were quite positive about experience of things like cancer care and maternity services. Unfortunately, that experience has become much more negative over mm. the last couple of years. So there is a bit of a mountain to climb. And then for mental health services, people's experience was already quite negative, and it's got even worse. Obviously, waiting times in workforce we know, you know, impinge on that. So there's there's a lot there. There's you know. People's ordinary experiences, I can't get a, I can't get an appointment, I can't get a, a dentistry appointment, 
I'm waiting, I'm not getting supported whilst being waiting. And then it's lovely to think about hope, but it's a kind of a rarefied mm. atmosphere when we're talking about big policies and hope because they've got to be felt by ordinary people. Mm. So Simon, this, you know, this takes us, doesn't it, to, 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 to kind of a, a challenge for all of us and, and you know, with ICSs playing this incredibly important role for ICSs in particular, which is I remember a friend of mine, screensaver, used to say, is it urgent or is it important? And, and that's such a difficult thing for us because there are so many things that are urgent. And what the original long-term plan wanted to do in terms of, for example, moving resources upstream, a greater emphasis on prevention. Now, a lot of that was blown out of the water by the pandemic. But going forward, how we do that, how we achieve those important changes in the face of the urgent demands that the public has, how, how, do, you, how do you see that as a, as a leader? And, and so the pandemic absolutely brought that challenge and that disruptive uh, change, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it uh, really brought health inequalities uh, into a level of conversation that I'd not heard previously, actually. So, so let's not miss those opportunities that that disruption uh, and has, has brought about, because it gives us an ability to have a different conversation that I think we were having previously, because I think at times, uh, and I include myself in this, we, we knew those health inequalities existed, but we reported on them. We didn't say, what are we going to do about that? And now we're into the conversations of, actually, what did we learn from the vaccination programme? What did we learn from uh, knowing that postcodes on streets that had really poor uptake? And how do we translate that into the vaccination and immunisation programme and get into that space of working with communities and partners differently? So there's a different set of relationships in communities uh, as well, I think, now that we need to maximise on. Just touching a little bit on what Louise and Tyra said, you know, for me, the, the, the framework, the long-term plan gives as an opportunity to set the framework, doesn't it? So that doesn't need to be the template-driven piece of let's uh, fill all of this in and, and get into the minutiae of the detail. Uh, uh, but then we need the operating planning guidance that the NHS gets annually uh, uh, to show the direction of travel that fits with delivering that long-term plan. So there's an opportunity to really say, here's our vision for five to ten years, uh, use the operating planning guidance then uh, that won't have an impact on and patient level or a citizen level uh, but uh, we need to deliver services so that we do have that positive impact that aligns towards that direction of travel uh, and and let's keep that health and equality and that citizen voice front and centre uh, in terms of how do we deliver that. I think the final point from me Matthew on this uh, is I think uh, you, you touched on working at place and local authorities and health and care. Uh, I think there's a real risk here that health starts to say look we've got place now and it looks like this. Uh, this is our party. Uh, uh, here's your invite to our party. Mm. But local authorities have been doing. Local mm. authorities were set up to deliver place. So actually, we need to be uh, show that humility and be humble in that space to go and say, how do we do better at working as a partner with you in place? And here's the things that we need to deliver at that place level. How do we better do that? Uh, and I think there's a change in dynamic conversation that we need to be having in that space there, uh, where, where we we're asking to come to somebody else's party rather than it's just always our party and we know best. Yeah, I think something that's such a, a powerful uh, point, and, and it's partly around kind of patient and public engagement. Fatima Khan Shah spoke at the, the, the Fuller uh, event yesterday. She's you know a brilliant and powerful advocate for that, as, as are you, Louise, of course. And it's also about exactly as you say, this engagement with local government. And uh, and one of the things I argued in my speech yesterday was that we can learn from local government because the way in which 
we in the health service have tended to engage the public is we talk to them about ourselves, about things that we want to do. We don't talk to them about what we need citizens to do. But local government, because it's been starved of money and because it's got democratic accountability, has had to have those difficult conversations. It's had to say you're going to have to pay to park your car outside your house. You're going to have to sort your recycling into different bins. You're going to have to deal with low traffic, whatever it might be. And there's lots of protest and letters and outrage. But in the end, it's a kind of robust conversation. And I quoted yesterday a director of public health who said the NHS tends to view public engagement as like dating. You know, I'll go out with you, but if it's no good, I'll, I'll back off. Whereas local government sees it as a marriage. You know, it, it, it can sometimes be difficult, but you stick with it through good times and bad. So how important do you think, Simon, is, is, is it, in both in terms of the long-term plan, but also in terms of the system and place working, that the health service really changes the way in which it thinks about public and get a step change in how it thinks about engagement of partners and the public? Uh, I think that's been one of the key learning points from the response to the pandemic hasn't it Uh, and we need to translate that into how we think about both the planning the delivery uh, uh, the changes to services as we go go forward I think it's a really fundamental part of that that conversation Uh, you know for for me getting into that space of uh, the sharing of data the use of the population health management to really start to to understand what this means what that impact is Uh, there's there's a high level bit isn't there that fundamentally education job at home and a friend that, that, that those principles there what role can the nhs play in supporting that both as an employer as much as then uh, the services that get uh, that get offered uh, but we will not be able to respond with the financial challenges with the ask of uh, the, the the delivery and the performance challenges uh, if we're not able to have that honest conversation with with local residents and with local citizens but we don't need to do that in isolation we can do that with a lot of local authority partners mm-hmm. and we should be doing that with our local authority partners we, we we make sure we don't lose sight of those three lenses of integration that came even before the first long-term plan primary and secondary care integration that's an nhs conversation uh, mental health and physical health, uh, and then uh, the NHS and broader partners, local authority social care. So, so let's look at those three lenses and understand which conversation are we in uh, at any point and, and what the focus is there. And, and Louise, this issue of, of, of how we engage the public, you know, it's very concrete. We can talk about it in abstract terms, but it seems to me that it's very concrete. And you know, if you look back historically from you know, community care back in the 1980s, right through to digital consultations. We think we've talked to the public about something and then things start to go wrong and the public turns around to us and says, you're only doing this to save money or you're only doing this for your own convenience. And 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 suddenly it kind of goes wrong. And, and I, I worry that there are good initiatives like virtual care, uh, like patient-initiated follow-up. These are good things, but if we don't, explain clearly to the public why we're doing them or action on inequalities you can see how easily patients could start to say you're just doing this to save money you're doing this to make your life easier you're doing this because you're all terribly woke I don't know what you're talking about so do you think that health leaders get that this conversation with the public is not just a nice thing to do but it's absolutely essential to making change succeed Oh, I love the way the conversation's going. <laughs> and you, you know, you've kind of answered the question a little bit and uh, so delighted as well, Matthew, that, that, you know, as the leader of Comfort, that you, you know, you do actually understand and, and believe in, you know, you know, public and patient voice being at the centre of change. I, I worked for a local authority for a while as well. So I worked for Lambeth Council for three years and 
I was in charge of all the consultation and communications. And it was absolutely fundamental to everything that we did from, you know, how the bins were collected, how the streets were cleaned, what happened in the parks, you know, real impacts on people's daily lives. And it was a constant process. And having been, you know, part of the NHS for a while now, it is, as you say, it's kind of, all right, we need to find out. We're going to um, close this, you know, urgent treatment centre or whatever. Let's see what people think about it. But let's, you know, let's see. We're going to maybe, it's possible we're going to close it anyway, but let's see what we, you know, what, how we can ameliorate it. And people are like, oh, they're asking me about that. You know, a bit cynical now. Mm. They're just asking me about this. They've come to ask me about this. They're going to do it anyway. You know, my views, you know, may have some impact or not. And then I won't see them again until they ask me about another thing to do with the surgery or some, something I don't really understand about integrated care. And actually what needs to happen on a micro level, so with individual surgeries and individual trusts and individuals, is that constant conversation. And then on a macro level, a really meaningful way of inputting into change of service. So if you were to take dentistry, you know, really asking people what you want the dentistry service to look like when um, ICS is you know, take over commissioning next year, working with Health Watch patients, you know, lots of other groups. And, you know, Simon was talking about inequalities. You know, how do we understand why some people, why there is inequity in, in, um, in waiting lists, why there's such inequality, why women and black and Asian people and disabled people, uh, why they're having such poor experience of waiting, why they're waiting for longer, why the wait impacts them more. You know, what's happening there? You need to actually ask the individual you know, you know, what can we do to support you as an individual on that on that list and then take sort of personalised action? So communications actually, it's not always about cost because that doesn't have to be done by a clinician often. It's at the core, and we've said this that to the NHS guys who are refreshing the long-term plan, is going to be so important for all bits of the system to take on properly as we go forward. So Ty, one of the one of the points that was made in the session the fuller session yesterday was was that this demands a very different kind of mindset from the traditional mindset that one might have had about you know with a uh, from a clinician that the kind of paternalism the doctor knows best kind of worldview has has changed and when we ask general practitioners to be working at scale to be thinking about population health to be engaging patients the voluntary sector this is a very kind of different job. And and do you, how challenging do you think that these ideas around public engagement, around community engagement, how challenging are those to the kind of professional mindset uh, of the in the NHS? Oh, I think I think it's huge. I think it's huge. I think we've got a we've got a long way to go with 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 that uh, change and that culture. Um but but I think it's something that we need to learn. So the the traditional model for for clinicians is is it is sort of quite quite reactive. It is very much I, I've been to medical school. I know I know all <laughs> the stuff. So it's very much about well we think we we have that power to to then share. And we we have been trying to to include or involve patients in in shared decision making and and some of those uh, elements for for quite a few years, which is which is going some way. But I think what we what we see is that there's still this 
this this dynamic where the doctor knows best and i think that definitely is a culture change in terms of how we're going to move forward from from here um the the uh, in terms of um, relating and having patient engagement we we know that patients know themselves best and we know that healthcare that we provide as clinicians only affects their lives about 20 to 25 percent at the most uh, simon already mentioned the wider determinants of health the housing the ability to to interact with socially with other people um, having education those are the things that actually make a big difference so I, th I think we need to realize as clinicians that actually we, we can only impact people's health by a small amount. And actually, if we really want to help that person, we've got to go beyond our, our, our traditional way of thinking and approach to, to healthcare. And we've got to look at all the other bits. And I think that will then drive us to actually do that engagement with, let's talk to the person and mm -hmm. say, okay, what actually matters to you? So somebody mentioned it at the session, I think it was that session yesterday, and it says, the question is to change from, you know, what's the matter with you to what matters to you mm. uh, and how can I help you? How, you know, what do you really need? And not, not preempt the answer to be, oh, I need a, a drug or I need a treatment. Actually, it might be that I need support with my house or I need support with my kids who are really struggling in school or they don't want to go to school because they're depressed or whatever. So sometimes the, the answer might be not what we expect, but our job, I think, needs to change from let's give you a prescription to let's support you by giving you the right access or the right signpost into the right place for what you need. And then if he does need something medical, then we can we can do that as well. But I think the challenge we're facing in the NHS as clinicians also behests us to, to actually change the model a little bit and just start thinking, actually, why do we medicalize so much of mm -hmm. life? We don't need to medicalize a lot of the things that we currently do. And we need to step back a bit, I think, and and not always think, oh, it's got to be something medical. Let's, let's see people as people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to think, uh, you know, in some ways, you can develop that sort of partnership with patients that sometimes actually become your friends, which is one of the joys of being a, uh, absolute joys of being a GP. You have patients that you become sort of friends. I mean, there are boundaries, but you do mm -hmm. have patients that you can, you can sort of do a bit of a chat with. You can sometimes, you know, say things. I have given some patients my, my number. When you get to that stage, you think, look, you're going through a really tough time. Call me if you need anything, mm -hmm. even though we don't do on call anymore. But you get to that stage mm -hmm. where you think, you know, there's a vested interest. Can't do that for everybody. Otherwise, you... But but I think you you do have to have that partnership working, and I think that's that's where we need to get to. It, it's it's a long way to go, um, Matthew. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. But I think there are people that are beginning to realise that this current system just needs a bit of a slight step change. I, I want Tyler to be my GP now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I do as well. Um, uh, to end up, I want us we to move from the micro of, of uh, that's a wonderful account, Tyler, of the of the kind of relationship with right at the front line. But I want to draw back now in our, in our kind of final bit of our conversation to the macro, because one of the areas where the debate is really stuck is, is around money. And the Secretary of State yesterday, you know, the message he wanted to get out to the newspapers, which they picked up on, is there is no more money. You know, I talked yesterday about a severe and growing capacity gap. I think Amanda used more diplomatic language for me, but she also recognised in her speech this capacity gap. Now, we're talking about the long-term plan, but uh, a few months ago was the 20th anniversary of the Wanless report that was commissioned after Tony Blair's commitment to increase uh, health spending to the European average, something often known as the most expensive breakfast in history, because uh, he was on breakfast TV when he made this comment. Um, now, what Wanless argued was that if you get your policy right you can shift the demand curve. You can get to a position of greater financial sustainability. 
And in this argument between those of us who say, look, there's a huge capacity gap and the Secretary of State saying there's no more money, we've got to get out of this into an argument that says, how do you invest? How do you innovate? How do you change your relationship with patients? How do you have an approach that is health in every policy? Which really can take you, despite the fact that demand is going to grow, mainly because of population aging, it can take you to a position of financial sustainability. We've got to win that argument because otherwise this sense that we're a bottomless pit is going to lead to a kind of fatalism amongst taxpayers and voters who are going to say, look, you know, however bad the health service need is, it just looks unending. So, so Simon, how do, how do you think we can start to articulate an argument and win an argument with the public that says, look, if you give us the right investment, the right support, actually there is a way to shift this curve and to move to a position where the health service doesn't need to consume ever more GDP? It's an easy question to finish on, isn't it? But it is a hard question, I know. But in a way, it seems to me, if we can't find an answer to uh, it, we're in a lot of trouble. So look, I think, uh, I'll, I'll give it a start, but then I'm sure Louise and Ty will fill in the detail and come in on, on this one. Uh, uh, so I think the first bit is, we cannot afford to lose uh, our honesty and authenticity in that conversation. Uh, so so there's a, let, let's be honest about what can be delivered for what we've got and what does that look like in the here and now? Uh, because the worst mistake we can make is... Uh, is is lose that honesty and authenticity and that connection and and I think that's at risk. Uh, so we need and I, you know it was really positive yesterday that the, the message from Amanda and from the senior team all the way through has been uh, let's let's have that honest conversation around what does this look like and what does this mean and what's in front of us now. Uh, whilst we create the space for uh, what's the next three to five years uh, look like in terms of that partnership and in terms of that relationship, uh, I think uh, the. That the, that the wider determinant piece and the wanderless report, uh, the, the refresh of the long-term plan, uh, give us that opportunity to have some of that, that headspace uh, to be able to get into that debate and get into that, uh, that conversation. Uh, I think it's absolutely about saying uh, the answers don't sit always around the board table. Uh, the answers often are in our communities and are, and, are, and are with our partners. So, you know, as an example, I was speaking to the further education colleges in, in Telford on on Monday, and they were saying, "Well, why don't why aren't we around your uh, people board? Why aren't we talking about what the ambitions are for local people, for local children, and for uh, for those coming through education in terms of what kind of health and career, care career look like? Because that then starts to change how they stay in the local area, what that means in terms of housing, what that means in terms of employment opportunity, uh, uh, and and that then starts to start to change that public dynamic of getting into some of those points that Wadler's talked mm. about. Uh, but we've got to do that in partnership with our communities uh, and, and with local government and with local authorities. We can't do, and with the voluntary community sector. Uh, if the NHS, if we think, if I think in Shropshire, Telford and Ricken, I can solve our really challenged financial position by doing more of the same and doing it faster with the current workforce, then everybody knows that's not going to be the right, mm. the right answer. Uh, coming back to the honesty and authenticity bit, we're also going to have to make some difficult decisions. Yeah. Uh, and, and we can't uh, make those difficult decisions uh, if we just keep talking about it rather than saying, uh, well, we can no longer deliver that in that way. Uh, that is going to have to change. But let's make sure we put the narrative around that. And you touched on this right at the beginning. Let's make sure we put the narrative around uh, what the other options are. What does that mean in terms of digital? What does it mean in terms of community-based and, and uh, the, the wider partnership piece, not just a deficit-based conversation? Because mm. there's a risk in this when the money gets tight. You end up with a, with a negative deficit-based conversation that's about cutting rather than about uh, what are the services we need to change and what does that look like? Some of it will be 
actually that access isn't going to be as good as it was previously or we've not got that service in the right place. Well, that's okay, but let's be honest and authentic about that conversation uh, and help. My conversation with the local communities need to be, how do you help us find those solutions? Not come with a, please, can we consult on the closure of this service? I think mm. that's often where the NHS gets it wrong. It comes at that point at the end. Uh, but the, the reframing piece uh, and the, the ability to get into that prevention agenda, uh, I come back to a point I said right at the beginning. If we don't use what we've learned from the pandemic response... Uh, to flip and change the way we focus on communities working with partners, uh, then we will have missed the biggest opportunity mm. we've got to get into that space. And, and Louise, I mean, right now, the public feels a lot of anger, a lot of concern, a lot of frustration. And, and the danger is, and, you know, we're all guilty of this, by the way, you know, that, that, that people say in the morning, well, why isn't the health service there for me? Why am I having to wait? And then in the afternoon, they think about they think as a taxpayer, and they think, why am I shelling out all this money? Why am I having to pay the social care levy? You know, they're dealing with the cost of living crisis. So taking the public with us on this journey and them understanding the role that they have got to play working with us in getting to a position where the service is better, but it doesn't have to ev consume ever more money. That, that, that It's not going to be easy. We have to have that level of conversation with the public, don't we? Yeah. I mean, I think people, to, to be honest, the work we've done is that overall kind of sentiment towards the NHS is positive and has, has become more positive. They're just sort of pockets of, well, quite big pockets of frustration, very big pockets. <laughs> but overall, people do still love the NHS and have got huge amounts of admiration for it. You know, people will often understand that they have to wait in it for, for a procedure, but it's their experience whilst waiting that will often frustrate them or the, or the gateways or, you know, the way they're dealt with. I mean, it, it, so, you know, pe people are grown-ups and they can have that conversation. They do understand that there is um, there's a limit, you know, to spend. What that limit is, is not something that is is really discussed on a national level is it you know we I, I can't recall the time where we've ever said you know what proportion of gdp let's have a national conversation should be dedicated to health and social care i mean kind of in, in local authorities it happens by the back door isn't it most of the ta most of the council tax goes to social care but it's not you know it's not talked about hugely in advertised because you know some some people may not like that but i think i like to think most people would would support it i mean to, to your kind of initial point and to what Simon says as well public health do have a lot of the answers here and you know prevention really does work in lots of ways so so more support for public health interventions you know co-created or talked about with communities and indeed some of the um, inequality reducing initiatives that are coming up like Core 20 plus mm. 5 should actually help whole populations and reduce demand for acute um, so, so you know, do if if we, I think I think the Secretary of State and and others, there is this big problem. He's got to to wrestle with other departments. I mean, uh, talking about the food strategy, for example, you know, we know that there's a lot of evidence to show that if you take um, salt, fat, and sugar out of the food chain, then in the long term that will probably reduce obesity. And yet, it's become this politicised issue: is it nanny statism or not? Mm rather than let's just think really, you know, clearly and logically and methodically that it will ultimately reduce obesity, reduce type 2 diabetes, help the population, reduce strain on the NHS, reduce 
the need to pay out billions of pounds. And it would just be lovely, wouldn't it, if that thinking just kind of carried through government at all levels. So, Ty, the last word to you on, on, on this kind of question, which is that at our worst in the health service, it can look as though what we're doing is kind of trying to shuffle demand around the system. You know, that, that there's a kind of clock-stopping mentality that says, you know, well, let's, meet, let's shift that onto secondary and secondary, so let's shift that back to primary, let's shift it onto social. And we have to get into the business, it seems to me, of demand management. It's a very dry phrase, but... Now, primary care is going to be critical to this. And, and, and moving to a world where instead of, in a sense, and I know this is a caricature... That, that primary care sits and, and reacts to the demand that comes at it, that primary care gets into the business of going out into the community and managing that demand, preempting that demand, spotting people who could end up being people who use services very he- uh, heavily, but helping them and supporting them so they don't need to. Do you feel that primary care is ready for that, that shift into a kind of greater focus on moving upstream and affecting demand rather than just responding to it? And again... Is it realistic to imagine that you can do that, given the kind of pressures you're under? Yeah, interesting question. Not an easy one for to come up. But I think um, I think the the answer has got to be that we have to. I don't think it's a case of whether we want to. I think we have to mm-hmm. uh, in in primary care. Um, we have to shift further upstream to reduce that demand. And I think at the moment, the, the, the difficulties, um, general practice just hasn't got the headspace. Most GPs are just at the cold mm-hmm. face, head down, can't, can't look up to do anything. Even when you suggest that there's some solutions, that we're too busy to try the solution. So it's that kind of approach. But I think if we don't start to do more of the prevention, and I think what you're related, what you're mm-hmm. referring to there is also a bit of population health management. Mm-hmm. And if we don't start to work in that kind of way, what we're doing is actually we're going to end up with more expensive mm-hmm. um, care further down the line. So we do I think it's a case of we have to work in that way uh, for us to be able to manage the money, manage the resource that we have, but also the, the workforce. The workforce is a huge issue. And I don't see how that's going to be sorted or solved any anytime soon and definitely not quickly. So we have to manage all those resources quite carefully. And one of the ways we can do that is start to shift some of the care further upstream. I think with uh, in primary care, generally with P- with the advent of PCNs and our PCNs have worked during the pandemic, I think there is a bit of a of a framework, a bit of a stepping stone that we can build on. We have seen how PCNs have gone into communities and actually done some work, particularly with vaccinations, but actually not just that, with some screening programs. They've done work with communities in terms of uptake of uh, of, of other services. So we we already have a, a bit of a of a some examples that some of them are in the in the stock take review from Claire Fuller that we can learn from um but it's for me it's how we create that headspace for for the for the bulk of general practice to just look up for a minute and see that actually these are the main issues this this issue and demand we're facing now is because of pressures from you know years ago plus the pandemic but for us not to keep being under the cosh we've got to change something now move further upstream, do population health management, identify need as it's mm. arising, and then we can we have a chance of reducing some of that pressure as it comes. And the pressures of the, the, the benefits of reducing that pressure at the front door in primary care means huge, huge benefits for the rest mm. of the system, community for secondary care, for social care. So it's not just a case of we're getting the benefit in primary care. So it's a whole system effort mm. to try and make that happen. And then go back to my earlier point about ICS's need to support primary care, that front door, because if you do that and you help us to push stuff uh, out into the community, do more prevention, do more population health management uh, with all the right data, um, 
give primary care the, 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 the structures and the ability to do that, then you're saving a lot of effort and a lot of uh, time and resource further down the line. I know it takes years, and that's always one of the issues with the, with the NHS, is that we measure things by annual cycles. Uh, and you can't do that with a lot of this prevention agenda or population health management agenda. So we have to change some of that as well in terms of our expectations of what we can deliver. Well, I'll tell you, that's a really eloquent way of, of, of capturing the challenge, I think, that we face at every level of the system, which is we know what we need to do in the medium to long term. How do we create the space to do that given the short term pressures? That seems to me to be the big issue that hovers over this event. I could spend the whole day talking to the three of you, but um, I'm sure you've all got busy Confed Expo Day 2 uh, ahead of you. So thank you so much, Louise, Tayo and Simon for joining me. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. <laughs>